Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Style That Binds Us podcast. We are very excited to welcome Daniela Pierre Bravo to our show today. Daniela is a reporter at MSNBC, a TEDx speaker, and author. She is also the founder of Assesso Community, which is a community dedicated to access, opportunity, and mentorship. We cannot wait to hear about Daniela's incredible career, her two books, Assesso Community, and so much more. Thank you, most inspirational, fabulous female, Daniela, for being here. (laughs) Thank you so much for that awesome introduction, and thank you for having me. So I know all about you because I've read your two books. Well, one of them I listened to, so your voice was in my ear for six hours. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I loved it. It's a long time. It's a long time. I I did that audio book and um, I was like, I, I, I tried as little as possible to listen back to it. So I was like, oh, I can't hear myself. <laughs> so thank you for, for listening to that. Oh, I loved it. And so... Since I know everything, but our audience and mom does not. So will you give us a synopsis? Who are you? Tell us about your books and your career path. Fabulous life. Very inspirational. So I'm originally from Santiago, Chile. I'm the oldest of five five kids. And when I was 11, my, my immigrant parents thought it'd be better to move to America to kind of give us an opportunity of the American dream. And so we settled into a small town in Ohio and I quickly found out that I was a little bit different than other kids. And that we had this secret that I felt at the time that was very shameful, which is um, that we were undocumented. And so I really didn't understand the magnitude of of the situation until I started applying to colleges and trying to get my driver's license And of course, when you're undocumented, you don't have access to any of those things, even if you do well at school and you apply for scholarships, you still can't get them because you don't qualify for any federal or private loans because of your status. And so it was a really uphill climb from the beginning. And early on, I, from the start, I I felt like the other, especially because I tried to change so many ways that I was just to fit in um, and to assimilate. And I didn't realize it until now, but until recently, but so many parts of my identity were fragmented early on. Um, And it took me a long time to really figure out who I was and what my voice was. I tried as much as possible to kind of be on an equal playing field when I didn't have access to that equal playing field. So when I was in college, I ended up applying before I graduated. I I ended up going to college and we, you know, my, it was a family effort. We all, you know, chipped in cash because I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't get a loan. And so it was the last semester before I graduated. I took semesters off here and there. I worked while I was in college to make it work. And I applied anywhere and everywhere in New York. I ended up saying that I lived in New York. And so when they called me, um, P. Diddy's company, this was really kind of what got me my foot in the door. P. Diddy's company has a marketing agency. And they were like, well, can you come in for an interview tomorrow? And of course I was in in the middle of the cornfields in Ohio. And I was like, yes, of course I'll be there. (laughs) And I couldn't get on a plane. I couldn't drive. I didn't have a driver's license. And so I ended up getting on an 18 hour bus, nine stops through the night. I didn't really tell my mom until I was already on the bus because I, because <laughs> I didn't want her to panic. Cause I, honestly, it probably wasn't that safe, but I wanted, 
I was so hungry for an opportunity to just get myself in the door and to just learn from from other professionals around me. And at the time I was still undocumented. So even if I did this unpaid internship and I got this unpaid internship and I lived in New York, you know, and I had these four side jobs, which I did, I couldn't do anything with my degree. Right. And so what really changed my life was that summer I made it to New York. I got that internship. It was unpaid. And I remember had no idea that this was going to happen, but DACA came out, which was an opportunity for about a million of us who were in my situation, who I had no idea went went through the same thing as me. You know, I thought I was like a leper. I thought I was the only person that was going through this. And it was such an emotional day. I had no idea it was coming. And it really did change my life because it gave me an opportunity for a work permit, an ID, and really an identity, right? An opportunity to say, in some way, shape, or form, you belong. And so from then on, um, that summer, that was really life-changing. I had those little bits of internship experience. So I was like, okay, well, sky's the limit now. So I ended up applying to the NBC page program, which I had no business doing. And I really didn't know anybody there. And usually like, it's like friends of friends or executives, uh, you know, family of executives, you know, that help put your resume along. And so I didn't have any of that. I didn't have any mentors, any way in the door, but somehow I applied online. I got one interview, then another one, then another one. Long story short, I made it to New York a couple months later. I started with the NBC page program, which is an incredible program to get your foot in the door in media. I um, started out working for late night shows, like doing audience coordination for Jimmy Fallon and working in the talent department, SNL, and eventually Morning Joe, where I became a production coordinator and then working with Mika very closely. And then, you know, it's a longer story, but we ended up collaborating in one book I went from a booking producer to an on-air reporter, and I just came out with my first solo book in August of last year, which I'm so excited about, which is actually re-releasing in paperback this August. And so I think that's like the short, condensed version, believe it or not, of <laughs> long journey. Wonderful. It's all laid out in your book, The Other. So I highly encourage everyone to read this I don't even know how to describe you and and the journey and your career and everything. I mean, it's just insane the way that you make something from nothing and you just make it happen. I actually, you know, it's funny that you say that because Mika, one of the reasons why we we um, did the first book together, Earn It, is because she saw that grit and hustle. And she's the same way, by the way. So I think that she saw part of herself in, in me because she's, you know, she is such a hard worker you know, at 40, had to restart her career all over again. But um, so she really did see that part of my story. But you know what? As we did the press tour, the incredible press tour that I had access to with Mika, who brought me along on this incredible journey, um, I realized that, you know, my story isn't really not that spectacular or actually, you know, different than the stories of so many women around the country, especially women of color who hustle, who have grit, who are the first of their families, who are the onlys, and really have to work twice as hard to get on an equal playing field. So I think really my story is just reflective of the many stories of so many women around this country. And I think that's why it resonated. Well, and also for them to read it and hear it and not feel alone the way you had felt alone and different when you were younger. And I do think your bravery does set you apart a little bit and your, besides grit, 
getting on a bus for 18 hours through the night, that's, you, you made it happen. I think all of that is super motivating. Well, Allison, I think you just, the first thing that you said, like, is exactly the reason why I wrote the second book, which is to not make people feel alone, because I think that is the biggest deterrent to just believe that you have value in going after what you want. And so I think for a lot of us, you know, for me, for example, for so many years, I thought I was the only that, you know, was undocumented. I mean, I know that sounds silly, but back then, I didn't know what was going on around the country, right? You know, I I lived in a very small town of mostly, you know, white people that, you know, there was, I was the only Latina in school and there's certainly what weren't other immigrants that I knew of. And so you start to become not only just to feel like you're alone, but also that your differences are a liability. Uh-huh. And so that is really what this book is all about is just really flipping the script from feeling like your differences are a liability and really understanding how to identify your differences are superpowers. And so um, I really get it. You know, if you, you know, you read the book. So like the first half of the book is really an introspective journey of the narratives that we've been told about ourselves and how we've allowed ourselves to believe them and where we've lost power and value in ourselves because we've tried to become, you know, a chameleon to our environments and and try to blend in so much that we lose ourselves. And so the second half of the book is really those practical skills on owning your power and taking back power and standing up for yourself in real time and asking for what you want and advocating for yourself and negotiating. And so it is as much of a career book as it is a book of introspection and kind of a journey back to yourself is what I kind of realized as I finished writing the book. So the book tells your story so that people don't feel alone, but then it goes further because it gives steps or advice for people in their own careers. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And it's also the the stories of other women who have felt like the other and who have, um, you know, felt like so much of their careers have not been able to, you know, fully be reflective of their value because for so long they haven't been able to find their voice because of feeling like the other and feeling like they needed to be somebody else other than themselves. And so a lot of the book also is practical skills on, on how to, you know, not just get a seat at the table, right? Because things are, you know, we, we have a way to go, but you have ways to go, but it's getting better. And so you are seeing a lot more women at the table, but now it's not just how, how do you get your, you know, a seat at the table, but how do you use your seat at the table. And so that's really what this book is about. That's fabulous. I think every woman, every single woman at some point in her life has felt small, has felt like she had to conform and also has felt um, unheard. Right. I have an anecdote in the book of an Asian American woman who spoke to me in all her life. She's felt like the other and she's you know, dealt with microaggressions and and she's had to make other people feel comfortable because oftentimes she's in a room when she's the only and she gives me this example where she's at work and her mentor, her boss, um, who actually, you know, had mentored her along the way, made a comment when she said, 
you know, you look like a beautiful China doll. And mm-hmm. in her mind, it's it was supposed to be a compliment, right? She said it in, in, as a form of a compliment. But for the Asian American woman that I that I spoke to that told me the story that, you know, was a recipient of that comment, it was a total microaggression. And I think for her, it was hard to say, you know what, that wasn't appropriate or that didn't feel correct. Like it, 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 it mm-hmm. did hurt my feelings and it, and it did make me feel alone. And it also made me even feel more different. Right. And so it alienated her because it wasn't just about that moment. It was about the years of microaggressions that she had experienced because of her identity. And so I share that because what this woman did was just kind of laugh at the joke. Right. And so many times women react women of color or white women react in a way that makes the aggressor feel comfortable. Yes. Right. They don't want to cause dissonance. They don't want to make that other people, the other person feel uncomfortable by a comment that is made to make another person feel uncomfortable. Right. Right. And so we've been so conditioned to make everyone else comfortable and every, everyone else accommodating that we ourselves suffer in that end. Right. And how did this woman suffer? Well, that comment, because she didn't say anything back to that woman who, you know, it was hard to say something because she was her mentor when she was in situations at work, because she was in a, in a creative field. So part of her value was to raise her hand and share ideas in a meeting. Right. And so it was hard for her to do that because her voice, it was hard to use her voice. It was hard for her to be creative because every time she wanted to explain an idea outside of the box or something different. She went back to that comment, you're a beautiful China doll. And so that made her feel like she was different. And it, it kind of like stunted her voice because every time she said something that was different, it, it, it also, it made her feel like it was a liability, right? That her only value was that she was different. And so it's hard to understand until you've been in that situation, but that's why I wanted to share these stories and the other to make other people feel less alone and to share practical tools on how to use your voice and gain power back. That's wonderful. I have a friend who is, she's a powerhouse executive. She's African-American and she was in a board meeting and it was all men. And one of the men in the middle of the board meeting, he said, can I touch your hair? And yeah. she was so stunned, but everyone's kind of looking at him and her and like, what's happening here? And so she said, well, can I touch yours? And then everybody kind of nervously laughed. So she sort of stood up for herself, but also didn't make it awkward in the meeting. Right. Which was kind of quick thinking because she was so stunned and taken aback. Yeah. Um, but that's what he was thinking about in the middle of a meeting. So, And that's actually one of the tips that I have in the book for wow. anyone who has ever been the recipient of a comment that is, you know, based on a stereotype or is made to make someone feel uncomfortable is to react to that with a question and ask for clarity. Because the fact of the matter is, and we know this, that if you're in a position where you're the only one and you're in a room full of men, there are sometimes maybe real repercussions, right? To you standing up for yourself, not in all industries and not in all companies, but but sometimes there is real repercussions. And so 
that is a beautiful way to kind of stand up for yourself in a way where it's kind of even toned is just ask that question. So if somebody, if a, if a man is trying to mansplain you, right. Or is saying something that is stereotypical, instead of doubling down and laughing at them, you could say, what did you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Could you, could you clarify what you meant or just repeat what they said? Oh, you want to touch my hair? Why is that what you said? Like clarify to them because you know what? It does a couple of things. It makes them hear their own comment because sometimes people don't hear their own comments and they just need to hear how ridiculous they sound. Right. Second, it allows them to apologize. Mm -hmm. So it it rids yourself of that uncomfortability because guess what? What happens is as women, when something happens to us and we let it slide and we make that other person feel uncomfortable, that stays with us. And what happens is after that meeting, we huddle around with other women and we were like, well, you know, we talk about what happened and we let that fester with us. We're in the subway and we replay that. And next time we're talking to that person, we're replaying that. And we put, we like have that experience on our forehead because we didn't let it go. We didn't right. push, that, push that uncomfortable comment to the other person. And so it's really relieving to do that, right? So ask for clarity. It allows them to apologize. And then third, the only other option is that they double down on their comment, which now you have real data to use and go to HR, right? So I think that sometimes a lot of women think, well, am I crazy? Am I overreacting? That's a question that I hear a lot from women. And so just that simple, that simple reaction of which um, your friend Allison did as well, I think could be really powerful in the moment. That's good to know because I kind of think the man just sort of blurted it out. I don't even think he realized until right. later he was like, what? Why did I just ask her? I mean, uh. <laughs> Oh, and I, it was really nice. It is really nice, Daniela, to hear comment and then how it makes someone feel. Because like you said, they didn't mean to offend. They thought that they were giving a compliment. So I think in this world, it's very important for everyone, no matter the color of your skin, we all want to do better and say the right thing and not hurt someone, of course. So it's really great to be able to have that perspective and be like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. That's terrible. You have a clue that that would offend you rather than make you feel pretty. But I'm sure the woman thought all these years that you've mentored me and this is this is what you think of me. It was two totally different points. So. Yeah. And I think it goes back to finding your voice um, because when you find your voice, you're able to communicate better not only just how things make you feel, but also learn to articulate your value better. And um, I think that is a really important part of, of how to you know progress in your career is learning to find that voice um, and knowing how to use it. Yes. Do you think that's something that you can practice and get better at once you do it one time or a couple of times? I think it's, um, it's a culmination of, of times. I think so many women are in a position where they've they've become so used to being the only one in the room that they take you know that they, that they realize that they they internalize the fact that sometimes their ideas are not good enough right or you get into a uh, a negotiating room and you think oh well you know what i have is is enough and i'm so grateful to have it and so it's super important to 
be in situations where you are constantly trying to to build that confidence muscle because confidence is a muscle and you can get better at it. And the more you decide to use your voice and stand up for yourself and and articulate your value and um, ask for what you need, right? Mm-hmm. It 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 will build up to you really owning your seat at the table. Because I think that it's intimidating to to feel like you have to take up so much space all the time. And I think I found it so relieving to know that it is a muscle and that you can work at it the more times you have at it. Yeah, that's great because you don't want to feel like you're always going into combat every day, you know, having to defend yourself and everything. So I love that confidence is a muscle. Yes. And when you assimilate for years and years and years and try to be a chameleon, like you explained in your book, it's going to come out at some point, some Mm -hmm. big eruption, like a panic attack or something, because you've been just pushing, pushing, pushing and all down and just taking everything instead of being Mm -hmm. able to stand up for yourself, which is hard. It's a very awkward situation to then, you know, say that offended me. And all, all of that is hard for anyone to do. I think burnout is something that you hear a lot from women and it's, you know, burnout can happen when you are, you're taking that advice that was so relevant at the beginning of your career, which is put your head down, do the work and someone will notice, which by the way, you know, you should do that when you're at the beginning of your career and you're in year two or three, like put your head down, do the work. But there is a time where in your career, you have to know when you've built enough value to ask for more. And I think that is where a lot of women miss the boat, where they become so tethered to those rules that were applicable at the beginning of their careers that they lose that sense of, oh, wait a minute, I can ask my boss if um, they can take these tasks that are below my pay grade and give them to the person under me. Or like, I can delegate better, right? Mm-hmm. Or I can keep my 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 boss in the loop every week to make sure that he knows that I'm doing the work that I'm doing so that it doesn't go as invisible, right? Mm-hmm. Especially in, in the, this remote world where a lot of people are not getting into the office, right? And so the face-to-face with your supervisors and managers is limited. And so I think now it's more important than ever that women are really good about taking inventory on the value that they're bringing every day. And so burnout is something that we erupted in, in in the COVID era, right? Because so many women realized you know, I'm doing way more than I'm than I'm getting paid for, right? And so, what you saw is this exodus, right, of of these women who like left their positions and started out on their own, or left the workforce altogether. And there was, I believe, it was a, a McKinsey report that said that for every woman director, three directors leave, or something like that. And so, what that says is is that there's so much burnout as you move up the ladder. For a many for many reasons, right? And so I think one of the ways that we can kind of take care of ourselves is really pay attention to not just the value that we're we're bringing into the workplace, but that we're making sure that we're being noticed for it, and that if you are taking up more work, look at the structure of your specific ecosystem of your job, right? Like, mm-hmm. can you suggest to your boss to 
reframe things or reorganize things, right? Workflow wise. And so I think it's an opportunity for women to take a lot more agency on their work and, you know, be creative about how they go about uh, creating their career advancement. Absolutely. You spoke about it in both books and you have done a phenomenal job of standing out at work. And another thing I wanted to say is even if there are many, many stories, not necessarily similar to you, but people have done amazing things, that is in no way to say that what you have done is not phenomenal and remarkable. So don't think after hearing all of the stories as you went on the press tour and everything that yours is any less than. So just holding space for that. But do you have any tips for standing out at work? And maybe, I mean, you can kind of, you could talk about at different ages because it kind of, it does in the beginning, middle, end of your career would be a different, different way to go about that. Yeah. I mean, I think um, when you're starting off in your career, like this is what helped me and what got me noticed is just be hungry, be eager. You know, I think one of the reasons why Nika brought me under her wing was because I really did have these intensity, this intensity on how, um, you know, how much I, I wanted to, to truly like contribute and just be a sponge into my environment, ask questions, be curious, reach out to people, ask for informationals. People want to help other people. And so I think one of the, the easiest ways to do that is ask people questions because people love talking about themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're at the beginning of your career, take advantage of those moments. People want to take people under their wing. People want to mentor people, but don't just go up there and say, can you be my mentor, right? Make it organic, make it a two-way street, bring them value, right? Even if you're starting out and you're a Gen Zer, there's so much value that you can bring as well. So it's about being creative about it. And then as you move up the career, I talk about this all the time in my mentorship communities and our cohorts is we really do flesh out and build out our um, kind of leadership ethos and like, how do we want to stand out when we walk into a meeting and we leave, leave a meeting? How do we want to make people feel right? What's the communication style that we want to proactively, right? Um, put on, how do we want to communicate in emails? What's going to be more effective, right? And so it's really consciously building out a branding for your professional persona and your your leadership style. Because so many of what I hear from women in that middle stages of their career is that they become so reactive to their environment, right? They become into this ebb and flow of of being um, told tasks and not really thinking about how they want to strategically build out their careers, right? So building out kind of a plan on like when one or two years, I want to reach this level, or even if you don't know what's ahead of you in terms of career, maybe you're in a creative environment where that corporate structure is not as kind of linear, there's a way to say, well, what's the change that I want to bring, right? What are the things that bring me joy? Um, and so it's building that out in a way that's that's strategic and that also gives you value back because I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned with Mika is once you get into a point of your career where you've established your value and you've given enough value, you have to ask, you have to be in a place where they value you and they give you value back. And I think that is one of the most important things, especially when we're talking about burnout, which is so prevalent nowadays. Mm-hmm. 
It's true. And there's a word that you said, intensity. So people call me intense a lot. And usually it's an un- <laughs> That's why we get along, Delia. I know. <laughs> because you're the same. And it's usually, it's not a compliment when they say it. And they're like, it, they're kind of bothered because they don't necessarily want to put in so much effort. And so they would say, oh, she's so intense, you know, as if it was a bad thing. So how do you feel about being labeled <laughs> as intense? <laughs> Good. It got me to where I am. It got me from being undocumented to not having mentors, to not having a foot in the door, to getting on a bus, to being in New York, to making my way through NBC News, which I had no, you know, no, no one that was helping me until I met Mika. And it got me to write two books and having a platform and speaking to you. So I am very, I am very proud of being intense. <laughs> so we can. I've owned it. I've owned it. I've come to terms. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's remarkable for both of you, and I also think that, um, you know, there aren't so many other people that are the same way. I really do. I think uh, people like the two of you really stand out because of your determination and your energy level and everything else. Mm-hmm. Thank, Thank you for you. saying that. And I think, you know, the whole point of the book is, you know, even if you're not um, super outgoing or super confident, there's ways to find value in your differences. And I think that is something that I'm I'm so um, proud to be able to to kind of talk about with women and to have that platform. Mm-hmm. That's so important to say that. And that was really fabulous in the book. So I'm, we're linking both books and we this is required rating. Okay, so both of them, you need to read. All right. I'd like to know how you view failure. I think it's a great thing. I think failure gives us the building blocks of resilience. And resilience was something that really helped me build that tough skin when you're used to hearing no. And... I learned quickly on, really, if I was going to get anywhere, that I realized that no's were just, the more no's that I got, mm-hmm. the quicker I'd be, you know, in front of a yes. Mm-hmm. And so I think that failure is a great thing. And I I would inc- actually encourage a lot of young women, while you have those extra spring steps, to to fail as much as they can and to try as many things that they can, see what sticks. Um, because I do think that there's really va- value in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's great advice. I think especially if someone has two or three, then they really get discouraged. You know, two experiences that are negative like that. So what you're saying is just keep having those and eventually you're going to hit the big yes. Right. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's of course, it's hard for, for us because we've been conditioned to look at perfectionism as the only way to succeed and right. And, and being a good girl, right. And, and not doing anything that causes dissonance or only winning and, and, and doing as you're told is, is the way to go. And so I think Mm -hmm. we need to, I think it's empowering to understand and to take a step back and say, wait a minute, this is my conditioning, right? Because I think a lot of it lives in our subconscious Mm -hmm. in the ways that we have, grown up and the messages that we've been told as women are oftentimes sometimes 
the things that deter us from playing big and to mm-hmm. reevaluating our relationship with risk, right? Men are better at it. Men are better at taking risks. Women have a harder time. They have a harder, they have a complicated relationship with risk. And Mm -hmm. it is because of the conditioning that we've had early on. And so when we put that into context, I think it's liberating, first of all. And, you know, I failure and risks taking is all part of the package of playing big. And we know Mm -hmm. that playing big sometimes really pays off. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's so... It's frustrating. It's enlightening. It's everything to unlearn to, you know, like you said, stop yourself and go, wait a minute. Is that really true? Or is that just because of the way what society is, has, you know, told me? Yeah. And I think one of the things to consider as you're making decisions in your life and choices where you're, you know, coming up against risk or failure is to mm-hmm. say, and to acknowledge that it, it is supposed to feel uncomfortable. And that feeling of uncomfortability is normal. Why? Because it is counterintuitive to our conditioning, right? So when we are doing something that is counterintuitive to what we've been told or how we've been conditioned, it's kind of feel uncomfortable. And so I, I almost feel like if you're in that position and you feel uncomfortable sometimes, right, then you know, it, it it could it could mean that you're in the right direction, right? So there's right. there's a difference between listening to your gut and us women, like we're really good at listening to our gut. And obviously, if something feels dangerous or not safe, that's different. But if we are, you know, dealing with with risk that could really pay off and that feels good, but that feels uncomfortable to mm-hmm. kind of our conditioning into those mm-hmm. stories that we've been told, we have to rewrite them for ourselves for ourselves. And a way to rewrite them is to do actions and do things that we wouldn't normally do. Right. And I think I I've done that in my in my personal life, like just recently. So mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. For the longest time, I, you know, I was very intense as we talked about. I I was very like gung-ho about working hard and making sure that I had a hundred things to do. And if I didn't have like five jobs at once to do that, something was wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. And so for me, actually slowing down was very counterintuitive and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I hard, I had this hardness about myself Mm -hmm. because it really helped me at the beginning of my career, right. Being alert, being acutely aware of everything, being resilient, being gritty, right? Those were all things that got me really far at the beginning of my career. But now I'm at this position where I crave softness. Sure. And I crave being able to enjoy my life. Because for the longest time, I didn't have free time and I didn't, I couldn't do things that were putting me at ease and that gave me play. And so and for the last couple of years, it felt really uncomfortable to say no to things and to have fun and to cultivate fun. You know, I realized yeah. I had a hard time cultivating fun. I didn't know how to do it for myself. And so I think that's the big lesson of these last couple of years. Um, and it felt risky to me, right? Like for so yeah. many women, it's like, if I stop doing what I'm doing, the opportunity is going to be gone. I'm going to become irrelevant, right? Absolutely. The opportunity is is fleeting. And so we can talk about it both ways, right? And so I think that we're con- we should be constantly reevaluating 
our relationship with risk and a failure because conditioning is like not something that you're going to get over in a day. Like you've right. got to really work it's at it. Long, I think. Yeah. And your subconscious, yeah. it just, it's a, it's a very, it's a strong thing. It, you know, it, it's easier, it, but it's there. Yeah. I, you're talking specifically to Delia. I remember saying, you know, you should take a day off just a day. Well, why would I do that? You know, right. like, what? Because it's uncomfortable. I bet it's uncomfortable to just like, right. Not, you know, not slow down on the work one day, close your laptop at five and, you know, go play with your dog or go on a walk or do some shopping, you know, like it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's hard, but we have to know when we built enough value to be able to take those risks Mm -hmm. and to, to feel soft again. You know, I think that that's like my, Mm -hmm. my goal. Um, Yeah. And to discover what that looks like for me, because I, for the longest time, I don't know. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it feels like. Right. Yeah. You have to be so tough and brave. And then one minute you're Last night we went to um, Bryant Park to see at La Boheme. The New York City Opera was performing and to sit there with all those people and, you know, it was dusk and the opera was performing. And then there was the Manhattan Hinge, you know, sunset at the other end. And it was that when you stop and you have an experience, it almost catches you by surprise, like that feeling of just pure joy because you're so busy in your life, you know, yeah. working and running and pushing and, you know, all the things. So yeah. we need to do that. It's funny that you say pushing because that's such a good word. Sometimes we just push, 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 and we cause a restriction in our minds and our bodies. And it's hard to kind of release that and yeah. just feel soft again. And it's so important because when we take care of ourselves in any shape or form, right, you don't have to have a lot of money to go to a spa day or do tons of shopping. Like it can be a walk in the park, yes. right? It can be getting your favorite cup of coffee and right. sitting and watching the sunset. Like those things matter. Mm-hmm. And when we create a ritual around them, we show up better to our jobs and to mm-hmm. the people around us. Absolutely. It's just like putting gas back in a car. You know, it really exactly. does rejuvenate. Exactly. Oh my gosh, I don't know how to relax. But one thing, and it's very <laughs> hard for me to switch off from like work Delia to social setting Delia. And <laughs> so <laughs> with the summer months, I feel like wearing like romantic florals and garden party, like I feel like that kind of helps me to embody a different profile than work boss Delia being an entrepreneur and doing all the things. So I don't know, but it's, it's something hard to figure out. Well, that's a good plan because I know when you sometimes, instead of interviewing someone, when you go have coffee with them, basically just remembering how to be casual and have, you know, small talk and just catch up. It's, yeah. And also I'm really trying to be very present. I know mom, like when she's sitting there doing something, she's always thinking, oh, I should be doing something else. And or if I do say, OK, I'm just going to sit here and read a book, which kind of is for work. But then you're thinking, oh, gosh, no, I should really actually be doing something else. So really, just whenever we do have a moment, whatever it is that we're doing at the event, look, going to a museum exhibit, reading, having coffee with a friend, then really just being present and being there instead of thinking about all the other things you should be doing, I guess. Do you have any other tips on how to be resilient? 
how to become resilient. I think it's, I think it's, it's a muscle. And so I think the more that we think about it as a continuous action, um, and then we have an opportunity to get up every day and do it all over again. I think sometimes we, we view not being able to, to, to succeed or win right away, that it's mm-hmm. a failure, but just think of those as tokens of resilience and the more tokens of resilience that you have, the better and the longer you'll be able to stay in the game is the way that I see it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And life is a marathon. It's a journey. This isn't like a one day thing. So you do the best you can each day. And then the next day you can do that again. But we don't have to be so hard on ourselves. That's something I'm trying to remember. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. That's definitely. Okay. Do you have any tips on how to create opportunities for yourself when you feel like there are any there? Um, it's a big question, right? I think, um, we, I think back to my situation where I had like a blank slate, like I didn't have anywhere to start. Right. I didn't have anybody telling me, well, if you do this, this will happen or even guiding me along the way. And I think the biggest tool that I had that I, that really made a difference was my creativity, right? Is mm-hmm. thinking, well, if I can't get into the front door, how do I get into the side door, right? Like, how can I make this work in a way that may be unconventional, that may not make sense to other people, but I can see it. So quick example is, you know, I was still undocumented. I was in college. I was applying to all these internships in New York and I didn't have any experience in them, right? So I was, and I was also applying to things outside of my area of, you know, my major, right. Or that I wanted to do, I really wanted to work in media and be a storyteller and all those things. But mm-hmm. I, I couldn't just jump in. I knew that I, I, I didn't have enough experience and right away to just jump in at NBC or jump in right. into the media. And so I was like, okay, what are the, what's the, the dots that I can connect first that may not have anything to do with this, but that will create a narrative that I can tell to get myself in the door later. Right. So that's a creative thinking. And so for me, it was marketing and it was working at ad sales at MTV, right? It wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, but it gave me an opportunity to learn the ecosystem. Mm. Ad sales is like probably the least part the least sexy part of the business in, in, um, TV. Sorry if there's anybody in ad sales listening to this, <laughs> but it really is how all of us can have a job. Like oh, they exactly. are the heart of the business. Like they are pumping the wheels every day of being able to like get on TV and have shows, right? Like they're so mm. important to the process. And so being in ad sales, like was so beneficial. And I learned so much, but so many people could be like, well, what do I have to do in ad, ad sales? I, I don't want to do business. I don't want to work in sales. I don't want to work in marketing. Right. I want to work in T. I want to work in editorial. I want to be on a show. Right. But I saw, I saw the dots. And as long as you see the dots mm-hmm. and you feel confident about how you can tell your story so that no one else can tell your story for you, or on behalf of you, I think that is really empowering. And that is one way where you can make something out of nothing mm-hmm. is seeing the vision before anybody else can see it. And 
taking steps, small steps that might not make sense right away, but that can amount to something if you keep working hard and Mm -hmm. you keep doing it from a place with a lot of heart and intention and you're going to get there. You're going to get there. You're going to get close to there eventually. I think that was a brilliant decision. And I'm sure you made contacts, you know, cross-pollinating and all of that. So I think that was really smart. That's a good example that someone can use in their field to think about, you know, how they can come in the side door, like you said. Totally. And and to anybody listening, if they're in a if they're in a position where they don't really have a lot of experience in what they want to do or they want to pivot careers, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much lateral movements happening nowadays and careers now are not linear in the way that they used to be. There's a lot more space for creativity to build roles and to create your own thing and to go out on your own. And there's so many women that I mentor through Accessible Community where we actually sit in cohorts and we advise each other on how to go about building the career that they want. And I think it's really helpful to have a support system Mm -hmm. um, of not just friends, but of other women who want to do the same thing or that are in positions where, you know, professionally they're going through the same thing. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why I created Accessible Community and why we have these live sessions and these cohorts where we meet, because it's so important to have that support system and to have an accountability partner, I think is is, is super Mm -hmm. important as well. We just recorded a podcast with a famous orthopedic surgeon, and she said the exact same thing the importance of of both of those things, accountability and reinforcement, feedback, and just being a part of a community. Community is so important. Yeah. Words to live by. So in Um, terms of financial independence for myself and all females is something that I feel so strongly about and something, truthfully, growing up was never a concern. I never thought about it, which is insane. But that's just growing up in the South. You just think you're going to get married and your husband's going to do it all, which is not right. So you have done this. You have achieved financial independence and security, which is insane and fabulous. And I'm so proud of you. So please tell us, do you have tips for how to do this, even if it seems impossible? I think one of the first things is take agency on your own financial wellness. I started, I mean, I was financially independent since I was 15. I, I it's, it's hard to imagine other people paying for college and everything else. College, Yeah. And, you know, my, my parents worked hard to kind of give me a little bit here and there. And, and it was like a family effort for, for college, but coming out of college, my twenties were saving. I mean, for me, it was really important to, to put money aside and be consistent about those little pockets. Like I remember when I was getting a stipend, like working here in New York for an unpaid internship, I would get like, I don't know, I think it was like $30 a week or something Mm -hmm. Um, because it's technically unpaid. I had two unpaid internships. Mm -hmm. I got a small stipend and then I had three side jobs that paid cash. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember like, even if I got, I don't know, I'm making this up. Even if I got like $60 in a week, I would be putting $10 aside and not even looking at those $10. Mm-hmm. And those things in the long run end up working out. 
Mm-hmm. And so, um, and they, you know, they, they give you that financial wellness that is super important. And I think, you know, I used to write a lot about financial wellness and I had a chance to be on the Forbes 30 under 30 stage um, talking about this. And I actually interviewed Serena Williams on financial wellness because she had a great partnership with, I'm, I'm going to forget the name of the brand that she collaborated with, but we talked about financial wellness and um, how financial wellness for so many women is so unattainable. Right. You know, between caretaking and, um, you know, and my, my culture being La Latina, money always goes back to family, right? Like you're, you're in some way, shape or form caretaking. Um, it's just, it's just a cultural thing. And so like, how do you take your care, care of yourself while you're doing that? And I think for me, what worked in my twenties was just putting, it was like saving, like I was just saving and just putting small, consistent, um, amounts of money at a time. But now I want to do a caveat because I'm in my thirties now, early thirties. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about like, well, don't get your cup of latte or like, your because that could make you a mill. I'm exaggerating. Like that could make you a millionaire by like the time you're 90. Right. I need my, you know, my oatmeal, oat milk matcha every morning because it's become part of my mental health routine. Right. Right. And so I, that like it's important to not take blanket statements of financial career advice um, because it is so personal and it's different for everybody. But I think that obviously saving, even if it's in small amounts, is super important. And, you know, taking inventory, like I don't know what it's like to um, have interest on my credit cards. Like I pay everything on time. I never take me out any loans. And obviously I know that that's impossible for some people, but I try to pay off things as, as fast as I can, even if that means like, um, having less discretionary income. Um, but it gives me a peace of mind and, um, that's what's worked for me. And, doing the small pleasures where I can't like having my, my croissant or my oat oat milk, um, matcha because they, they're in a different bucket. They're in a mental health bucket and that's important as well. Right. Exactly. What you were saying, what we were discussing earlier about taking some time off or having little treats for yourself that sort of give you a respite during a busy day. Right. Exactly. Do you have any tips in a moment of huge disappointment of how to pick yourself back up Keep going and have hope. So, for example, when you had the wreck and you were ready to go back to college, but you weren't able to. Yeah, it's a hard it's a hard position to be in. First of all, take a deep breath. Go back home. Cry your eyes out. <laughs> go to bed. Wake up. Accept. Acknowledge. Put it away and start over again. That's basically it. Mm-hmm. That's what works for me. I love that. Concise and powerful. Let's discuss the quarter-life crisis so many millennials are having. Any tips for navigating your way out of this? You're not the only one. So knowing that you're, because I think that sometimes that crisis comes when you feel like alienated or alone and you're like, oh my God, I'm the only one going through this. And so 
understand that first of all, that you're not alone. There's so many people that are rethinking their careers and, and the way that they live their lives. And so you're not alone. And then second of all is put into context, the pressure that we have every day. There's so many people on social media that like live these lavish lives or that they're showing all these accomplishments, right. Or like getting all these awards and becoming millionaires before they're 30. Right. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that there's a lot of glamorization of how we live our lives. And we only put on social media, what we want other people to see. And so it's important to realize that pressure is something that comes from comparison. And when you're going through these midlife crises, like it's important to take a step back and, and to realize that the half of the stories are not being told of the people that you're looking at on Instagram. You're not seeing the, 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 the grit that's happening. You're not seeing like the bad days. You're not seeing like the cry sessions. And so I think it's like when you're in that position or you feel like you're going through a crisis, it's important to understand that like, not it, you're not the only one and stop comparing yourself. I think that's one of the biggest things that gives us anxiety nowadays. Like we feel like we're behind, right? Very much so. Any tips for viewing obstacles as opportunities? You know, honestly, like it goes back to what I said, you know, obstacles for me were no's. And so once I got resilient to them and the way that I became resilient to them is, is to take a step back and say, okay, I'm going to get a no. I may get two no's. I may get three no's. I may get four no's, but eventually something is going to lead into a yes. And so it's almost exciting when you, you know, you're going through one obstacle and something else doesn't work and something else doesn't work because you know that eventually something's going to work. Right. And so it's, it's just reframing it in our brains. Like mm-hmm. our brains are weird things. It's just literally our brains are computers. They're, they're a system that keeps us going in the, and that they're meant to keep us safe. And so I think part of it is realizing, okay, is this my conditioning, right? That's, that's making me averse to obstacles and, and making myself give up because I don't want to fail again, because I'm scared of risk because I'm, I'm, you know, it just goes against what I've been told that women are supposed to be like, or, or is there something at the end on the other side of it that is counterintuitive, but that can, you know, really pay off. Mm-hmm. What are some things that you did in order to gain experience in a variety of areas in your job, taking on new tasks outside of your defined scope of work for your role that led you to stand out and gain the necessary skills in order to get ahead? Um, I think it was a combination of things. I mean, I, I went from a book uh, booking producer, which is on the editorial side, helping choose the guests that come on the show to pivoting to being on air and reporting. It was a pretty unconventional way to pivot careers. But I think one of the ways that I, that I did that, and is one of the things that I encourage other women to do is to show people what you're capable of before they give you permission to, right? So even when I was um, a booking producer, I was doing interviews, right? And I would get everything together. I would package everything together and I would say to my boss, Hey, um, I interviewed Serena Williams at the Forbes conference. I got the cameras for it. All you have to do is if you want to run it, just can put it on the show the next day. And so it was small experiences like that, that kind of really contributed to them saying, Oh, wait, okay. 
okay, maybe, maybe she can do an air, right? Like she's shown us a couple of times in bite sizes that she's capable of it. And so I think that is something that I encourage all women to do is if you want to change where you're going, start doing the things that you want to do mm-hmm. before it becomes official or before mm-hmm. you get full permission of it. Because I think as women, like we're constantly waiting for permission. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's going back to that good girl mentality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's such a small thing to get to interview her. So bravo to you. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> what does the American dream mean to you? Freedom. It means being able to have agency on how the way, the way you live your life. It means building opportunities out of nothing, which I think is really at the heart of it. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. I think people that have grown up here and not don't know much different, you know, are discouraged about America or maybe they're not feeling very patriotic and that concerns me. So I think hearing your story and other stories can help remind people of all the positive things about our country and what people fight for. Daniela, how do you wish American citizens would treat people who have immigrated here? I think it's it's crazy that we're still asking that question in 2023, but it's unfortunate that you have to still remind people, I guess, that immigrants in this country are at the forefront of so many different ways we, we where we live our lives, right? Mm-hmm. I um think about the food yeah. that you, you know, the food that you ingest every day and, and the produce that we get. I'm doing a reporting now on Latinos in the agriculture industry. The majority of our food chain system mm-hmm. is built by immigrants. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we have to remember that and we have to be appreciative of it. And we have to remind ourselves, I guess, I mean, it's, again, it's, it's wild to me. Yeah. That in 2023, we still have to do this, but that it's people who want to be here. If you really take a second to understand their journeys of which I report a lot on, and I know very closely and personally, they have literally left everything behind, sacrificed so much to be in this country. And there is so much heart that comes from that and so much wanting to be in this country. And so what other way can you um, express patriotism than leaving all behind and starting over because you want to live here, right? And so I think that's important to remember. Any tips for finding and using your voice? Um, Start small. If you're intimidated by it, start small. And if you're in a meeting and you are second guessing your ideas, just say it, right? Because the more times we express our voice literally out loud and we practice using our voice and articulating what it is that we want to say, the better that we get at it. Confidence is a muscle. And so raise your hand when you, you know, you think your idea is silly or um, express your express your thoughts when you feel like you're the only person in the room that has that perspective. And the more you do it, the more confident you'll be at it. 
Absolutely. 100%. Great advice. Assesso community, tell us everything. It started in the pandemic. I did a shout out on my stories um, because a lot of women felt obviously alone and Um, I wanted to create a community that gave mentorship and access to women all over the country. And actually, we have a few women who are from abroad, from Europe and Central America that want to have mentorship in a community of women that they don't have access to elsewhere. And we do these quarterly sessions where we curate groups of women who are going through the exact same career pain point. We walk them through curriculum. Um, either myself or another mentor, where they can really work on finding their voice and building their value and learning how to build their leadership ethos in real time in a safe space where you can talk about things where you really can't talk about in the workplace out loud. And so really proud of it. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes. Mm -hmm. Kudos to you for taking the risk and doing something like that to help other people. That's the other thing that the doctor was saying too, was it's empowering when we help others. Absolutely. I, I think we're in a different era where I, you know, me and Mika talked about this in the first book, you know, in her generation, it was a lot of competition because there wasn't a lot of seats at the table. Yeah, right. And now I think women, especially Gen Zers and millennials are reaping the benefits of older generations of women who have paved the path and now realize that we're stronger in numbers. And so as you go up the ladder, pulling up another woman with you only helps all of us. What's next for you and where can people find you? Still doing my day job, which is reporting for Morning Joe. And I love being able to tell stories and talk to people and to tell those stories that are of underrepresented communities and writing for Know Your Value and highlighting more women and the incredible things that they're doing, um, building accessible community, um, bringing more people in, under the fold and can hopefully continuing on writing and, and um, doing another book down the road. But, you know, I'm really passionate about this book that just came out last August. The other comes out again this August in paperback. So I hope everybody goes and gets a copy mm-hmm. and you can find me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at D Pierre Bravo. So much important, informative, exciting tips and information that you've given us today. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. Yes. And we're going to link to everything, your books, Assesso community, your profile on NBC and social media in the show notes. Thank you, Daniela, for being so fabulous and for coming on and sharing all this wisdom and everyone. We will see you next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode on the Style That Finds Us podcast. If you like this podcast, make sure to tell a friend and subscribe. You can be a part of growing with us. Also, do you know about our weekly newsletter? You'll get access to exclusive content in our newsletter that we don't post anywhere else. Our newsletter comes out every Tuesday with the exception of the third Thursday of the month for Allison's special Celebrating Life After 40 edition. Head to the bottom of the Style That Binds Us website to subscribe.